Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a brand new criminal case. On January 6th, 1979, Cyril Belshaw, an eminent Canadian anthropologist, was on a vacation in Paris with his wife Betty Jo. They planned to meet for lunch at a shopping mall, but Betty never showed up. She did not return on the next day, nor any of the days that followed. But three months later, a mysterious body of a woman was found under a bridge near the Crans Montana Ski Resort in Wadi's region. Many believed it to be the corpse of the woman who had disappeared. From then on, Cyril Belshaw would slip away several times. He falsified the denial records that the police had requested. He refused to cooperate with officers when they came to question him, and he proposed some far-fetched scenarios which he recanted more than once. According to the Swiss law enforcement, his attitude appeared like that of a guilty person. The investigators had more surprises in store when they discovered that Betty in fact, had never accompanied her husband on the notorious trip to Paris. So then, who was with him all the time? Did Cyril Belshaw create an imaginary scenario out of thin air just to throw investigators off track? And most importantly, was he even a renowned scientist with an unblemished reputation? Or was he trying to get rid of his wife? Join me in taking a closer look at this story, which is so similar to an Agatha Christie's thriller where the classic husband-wife mistress triangle is usually the crux of the story. The story began in Paris on January 6, 1979, in the No Hotel Hotel's dining hall. The staff, who had been on their toes since 6 a.m., began serving breakfast to the early risers. Pierre, don't forget to bring breakfast up to Mr. and Mrs. Belshaw in room 45. I'm on my way. Like many other similar motels, No Hotel was a suburban hotel dormitory, located far away from most tourist attractions. It wasn't too high on the glam quotient, but it was neat and tidy enough. It catered mostly to foreign conference speakers and other professionals on business rather than people on vacation. Consequently, the hotel's decor was minimal and contact between the staff and the residents was limited to the customary professional courtesy and nothing more. The hotel housed 100 rooms, which were spread over six floors, an exclusive meeting room, and a bar that occupied most of the lobby. Mr. Belcha, it's room service. May I come in? Asked the server. Oh, just leave it by the door. My wife isn't quite ready yet. I'll bring back the dishes later. Thank you, my good man. A gentleman's voice responded in a heavy British Oxford accent. The server left muttering to himself, Oh, sure, another excuse not to leave me a tip. I've had it with these Brits. The Belshaws were a respectable middle-aged couple. The husband, Cyril, 59 years old, was a famous anthropologist who needed no introduction and whose reputation was known throughout the world. 
His work included several publications on the history of indigenous ethnic groups in New Guinea, Fiji and the Solomon Island as well as a doctoral thesis on the Maoris of New Zealand. He was hailed as a leader in his field and considered a star within the scientific community. Bettina Joe, simply known as Betty, was 60 years old and taught English at the University of British Columbia. While she was not constantly in the spotlight like her famous husband, she was nevertheless a key player in the literary scene of her country. Before dropping off their luggage at the French capital, the Belshaws took a trip to Switzerland for a sabbatical. They even found for themselves a lovely apartment in a Wadua chalet which they decided to rent for the whole year round in anticipation of their next year off. The couple had been married for 36 years and had two grown children, Diana and Adrian, who were also married. The Belshaws were a close-knit traditional and well-established English-Canadian family. Despite their material comfort, they preferred simplicity. They used public transportation instead of the company car to get to work. The only privilege they utilized were their trips, which they indulged in only because they were nearing retirement. Cyril and Betty Belsha had left the Noatel at 9am to take the subway. A full day ahead awaited them. The anthropologist planned to participate in a seminar while his wife had hoped to visit the National Library to refer a few publications and to do some research. They separated at 10am at the Bourse subway station. Darling, let's meet, say, at 1pm at Galleries Lafayette for lunch. There is a restaurant, The Golden Spoon. Do you remember it? They serve stew and scalloped potatoes with cheese and they have a complete wine list too. Afterwards, we can shop for some gifts for the kids and for your colleagues, Mr. Belshaw suggested. Okay, darling. His wife nodded in agreement and kissed him on the cheeks before getting lost in the crowd. Although the decor and the end of the year fairs were about to be packed away, Galleries Lafayette was still besieged not just by customers who came to browse during their lunch hour, but also with an army of Japanese tourists who came to explore the Maiden Fran shopping temple. While seated at a table in the Golden Spoon, Cyril folded the newspaper that he was reading and then glanced at his watch. It was 1.10 p.m. Betty had not still arrived. Usually, she was on time. In fact, too punctual. Well, being 10 minutes late isn't a problem. It can happen. Maybe she lost track of time amidst all her books and forgot about the busy rush hour in the subway. Mr. Belshaw folded his newspaper once again, but he wasn't really focused on his reading. His eyes never left the restaurant's entrance door. 1.15, Two. An hour late? Betty still hadn't showed up. The situation was starting to become worrisome. Cyril Belshaw who was a reasonable and thoughtful man, preferred, however, not to think of the worst. Surely, she simply stayed longer at the library than she had planned to, or she left to wander around the city and forgot the time and maybe just returned to the hotel. Being past the age where he would get into a scene with his wife just because of a missed date, Mr. Belshaw continued to wait for the time being. It's important to remember that this incident took place before the smartphone era where easy and instant communication had not yet become a part of people's daily lives. Meeting delays and a general lack of punctuality were not considered inevitable. There were even some women who voluntarily preferred to keep some suitor waiting at the table, just to give their date a little extra spark. This kind of behavior was not just tolerated, but sometimes even encouraged. Tired of waiting and becoming increasingly worried, 
Professor Belshaw decided to quickly take a taxi to the National Library just to put his mind at ease. Once he arrived, he was told that there hadn't been any visitors that morning. But how could that be? That's insane. Especially since Belshaw knew that Betty had been planning to visit the library for long, much before they left for France. By this time, Cyril Belshaw had become quite anxious and returned to Noah's Hell, where once again he was told that his wife had not been seen the whole day. So he went to their room, sat down and waited. In the middle of winter, the streets of Paris get dark very early, which would be another reason for Betty to cut her stroll short. In fact, it was just a stroll. But the clock already read 8 p.m. and she had not yet returned. The first thing the next morning, Cyril Belshaw went to the Canadian consulate and the police to inform them of his wife's disappearance. They tried to be reassuring and compassionate and told him to wait just a little longer. Later that morning, he called his children in Canada to deliver the bad news. Diana, the eldest, wanted to board the next plane to join her father, but he dissuaded her. Not just yet. Give her some time. I'm sure she'll end up returning. By saying it loud, Mr. Belshaw was really trying to reassure himself. Besides, what good would it do to unduly alarm his kids all the way on the other side of the ocean? Don't give up hope, kids. I'm sure that nothing bad has happened to her. At this point, there had been no trace of Betty Belshaw for the past two days. No hotel's manager offered to personally escort her husband to the police headquarters in Bagnolet to file a missing persons report. At the station, Mr. Belshaw gave a very detailed physical description of his wife and what she was wearing on the day she had disappeared. He did not leave a single detail, mentioning all her accessories, even providing information about the color and the kind of underwear she had on and also the most distinct identification marks on her body. The police officer who had become irritated by this very fastidious gentleman finally took note as follows. Female, white, 60 years old, healthy in mind and body, light eyes, middle-length brown hair, about 1.7 meters, heavy, dressed in pinkish-gray suit, square-heeled dress shoes, pair of gold earrings, string of pearls, a wart under the chin, a bit of an overbite, she is cheerful and friendly, and speaks British English, as well as some German and French. Then Cyril Belshaw also questioned, without losing his composure, and already used to introducing himself to others, he outlined his qualifications. He was originally from New Zealand, born in 1921, became a naturalized Canadian, was the president of the International Anthropology Association, had worked as a teacher at the University of Vancouver since 1953, and had been married to his wife for 36 years. Their marriage was a good one. They came from the same background, got along well, and were the parents of two adult children. What were they doing in Switzerland? They came to rent an apartment in anticipation of their year-long sabbatical. Why did they go to France? A short break for a few days to discover the city of lights and to do a little shopping. They even planned to return to Switzerland the following week. Based on this information, the police came up with two possible explanations. That Mrs. Belshaw vanished voluntarily while taking the subway. She must have had her reasons. Or she met someone and things took a bad turn. The theory of murder had not yet been suggested. Mr. Belshaw signed his deposition and left the police station, escorted by the hotel director who accompanied him back to his room. The very next day, a notice of the disappearance along with a photo was plastered just about everywhere in the capital. But it did not lead to anything. No accidents or assaults had been reported near the National Library or anywhere in the surrounding areas. 
two days passed without any news. What if she had gone back to Switzerland, to the cottage that they had rented in Crans, Montana? That scenario was still possible. On January 19, 1979, Professor Belshaw returned to Vaud in the Swiss Alps. Before leaving France, he did not bother to call and notify the owners of his rented apartment, nor did he contact the caretaker of the cottage. Oddly, he did not even notify the Swiss police, most likely thinking that such a move would be excessive and unnecessary. Since the Canadian consulate and French law enforcement had already been updated on Betty's disappearance, there would be no point of adding anything more. Big mistake. Once he was alone in the empty apartment, Mr. Belshaw counted down the hours by twiddling his thumbs. Every day his worried children called him wanting to know the latest update about their mother and were shocked by how long the process was taking. Diana, the eldest daughter, still insisted on joining her father in Switzerland. On the phone, she felt like she was at the end of her rope, completely overwhelmed and almost in shock. She couldn't leave things as they were. The reunion between father and daughter was deeply moving. One evening, Diana Belshaw wondered, what if her mother had taken her own life? What if she had committed suicide? At that point, her husband began to obsess over the possibility of Betty's suicide. After all, that was an actual possibility. If not, then what would explain her continued absence and her refusal to contact him, not even to put the children at ease? Yet she seemed so calm and happy when they parted on that morning of January 6 in the Adeyan. She was so excited about the idea of spending an entire year in Europe. She was neither depressed nor neurotic. She was planning to decorate and looked forward to all the books she would bring from Canada, not to mention the ones that she planned to buy. She appeared excited, so the notion of suicide seems unlikely. But the more the time passed, the more the idea that she was no longer alive became a certainty. This was the point where things began to get extremely strange. The first bizarre turn of events occurred when the police went to the No Hotel in Paris to search the room occupied by the Belshaws just a few weeks earlier. While looking through the hotel's registry, one of the evening receptionists gave them a key piece of information. Throughout their stay at the establishment, Mr. Belshaw had always been seen alone. He was never accompanied by his wife. The police were baffled. How could the professor be without his wife since their two names appeared in the registry? One of the police officers quickly showed the photo of Mrs. Belshaw to the receptionist. An astonished look soon appeared on her face. I don't recall ever seeing that woman here before. Maybe that's because you work the night shift and there's little chance that you would run into her. But what about your colleagues who work during the day? Oh well, you'll have to wait until morning and ask him yourself. As for me, I've said all I have to say. The police returned promptly at 6 a.m. the next morning. And to their great amazement, the story was the same with the day staff. Nobody had seen this woman, not even the waiter who brought breakfast to the Belshaw's room every day. He was always the one who opened the door for room service. The wife was always getting dressed or taking bath, and so was never seen. What's for sure is that they never bothered to leave a tip for anyone, neither me nor the porter. Bloody cheapskate Brits. With this new and anticipated turn of events, the Paris police began to get the terrible feeling that Cyril Belsha had been making a fool of them from the very beginning. Furthermore, despite the fact that their names and their passport numbers appeared on the registry, there was nothing that really proved that Betty Belsha had ever been in France during that time. The Swiss authorities themselves only learned of her disappearance 
in February 1979 and only through the Canadian consulate in Paris. Immediately after the consulate announced the disappearance, the Swiss police went to the cottage that the couple occupied in Crans, Montana. At that point, Cyril Belshaw was not yet a suspect. He answered a few typical questions and mentioned his wife's suicide as a possibility. In France, just like in Switzerland, there were no clues to add to the information already gathered. Due to a lack of coordination between regional police, revelations made by the employees at no hotel had not reached the Swiss police. So the investigation stagnated and stalled in the hope that some new information might be uncovered that would get it to resume again. And then the improbable happened. It was March 28, 1979. About three months after Betty Belshaw had been seen for the last time. In the Swiss region of Wad, a villager made a gruesome discovery under the bridge connecting the Eagle to the Lusipeski Resort. The man was driving by his van when he first spotted a large green garbage bag covered in snow and hidden in a crevice. He decided to climb down for a closer look. A strong smell of decay seized him by the throat. But nevertheless, he continued and there it was. He noticed something sticking out of the plastic. Something skeletal. A very large bone. A human femur. There were still many surprises in store for the truck driver. Inside the bag, he found a corpse in a dreadful state of advanced decomposition, completely devoured by worms and wild animals. Only the skeleton and the teeth seemed to still be intact. The police were immediately notified. The remains still in the plastic bag were delivered to the Morgan Lausanne Hospital for an autopsy. The medical examiner Claude Emorbersteg, who was in charge of the process, concluded that it was the body of a woman, probably between 40 and 50 years of age. The significant decomposition distorted the results and made it difficult to determine the cause of death. The only certainty was that the victim was thrown over the bridge, that she was already dead and that her corpse spent the whole winter in that location. Moreover, the corpse was found completely nude, without accessories, without jewelry and without identification. Therefore, the humidity also removed any trace of the victim's fingerprints. It is essential to note that this occurred at the end of the 1970s and that the technology for identification through DNA did not exist. The only method adopted by medical examiners to identify corpses was through their dental records. Additionally, that was the only thing that was still intact. Dr. Claude Immobersteg noted the presence of four gold crowns and some recent dental work. The discovery of the mysterious corpse soon hit the local Swiss newspapers with the headline, Gruesome discovery near the road to Aiglalasipe of a body with no distinct marks except for four gold dental crowns. But only a few people took interest in the story. The Swiss police, however, took the whole thing very seriously and did not want to leave any stone unturned. They recalled the unexplained disappearance of a Canadian woman in February. Through some investigation, they found her husband's address, who was also a temporary resident in the country, having just rented an apartment for the year. The police contacted him immediately. Anything was possible. The police requested the dental records of Mr. Belshaw's wife in order for the medical examiners to compare them to those of the body found under the bridge on Eagle Road. Cyril Belshaw agreed not only just to cooperate, but also lend his valuable assistance. He personally took steps to get Betty's dental records. He arranged to have them sent from Canada through their family dentist, Dr. Moore. Everyone knows that this kind of procedure is done under police jurisdiction. 
but no one objected. If it could make things easier, especially communication, then why not? On May 7, 1979, Cyril Belshaw finally received his wife's dental records, the photocopies of which he sent two days later to the police in Lucerne. In turn, they immediately handed them to the Department of Forensic Medicine. An official then compared the dental records with the corpse and they turned up negative. They did not belong to Betty Belshaw. Yet Claude Immobersteg, the expert who conducted the analysis, still had strong suspicions. He demanded a better copy of the X-rays because the ones he had been given were not very clear. It was essential to contact Mr. Belshaw once again and ask for the original. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Surprisingly, he had already returned to Canada. So the dental expert decided to take matters into his own hands. Without using an intermediary or without asking Mr. Belshaw's permission, he contacted the Canadian dentist directly. For his part, the dentist was quite cooperative and ready to send him anything from his records that were needed. The whole thing was done in a matter of few days. Dr. Moore sent the medical examiner his patient's complete dental file. From that point on, everything was called into question. These were no longer the same dental records. The pace of the investigation was picking up and soon the truth would see the light of day. On September 20th, 1979, Betty Belshaw was finally identified as the body found under the bridge connecting Eagle Road to Lissipi. The medical examiner was able to find no less than 12 modifications made with Typex, a machine previously used by the British Army to decode and encrypt secret messages during the war. Such reproduction might convince a novice soldier, but not the eye and the scalpel of an experienced medical examiner like Dr. Immobersteg. While at home in Vancouver, Cyril Belshaw discovered the progress that the Swiss officials had been making behind his back. He then decided to contact Canadian police to provide them an explanation. He told them, Yes, I made a huge mistake, and I'm sorry about it. I acted irrationally, without taking time to think about it for a minute. I didn't want to accept the possibility that the corpse found in Switzerland would have been my wife's, so I falsified the dental records, almost as a way of convincing myself. Apart from his admission, which no one found very convincing, the question as to why Mr. Belshaw attempted to falsify his wife's dental records still remained. Was this a last-minute attempt to exonerate himself? Or on the contrary, a serious blunder made by a guilty person acting impulsive and forgetting to think it through? In the opinion of the Swiss law enforcement, Belshaw was the prime suspect in their case, the mastermind and the perpetrator. The willingness to take the lead in proving his innocence 
by helping the medical examiner was nothing more than a strategy to buy some time and plan his escape to Canada without being noticed. He was also absolutely certain that the police and Vod would not be able to make the connection between the corpse and his missing wife. In early October 1979, Swiss authorities decided to send two investigators to Vancouver to question the suspect by sending an appeal to extradite him, determined to get a confession from him at any cost. The two police officers began to use an age-old technique and behaved brutally with Mr. Belshaw. Immediately upon their first meeting, they set the tone. They would ask the questions and he would give them the answers. One of them even pointed an accusing finger at him yelling, Why did you murder your wife? We know for a fact that you're the one who did it, no one else. Confused and shaken up by this line of questioning, Cyril Belshaw became increasingly suspicious of the Swiss police, an attitude that will last throughout the investigation and into the trial. The two officers did not appreciate the suspect's stubborn silence and would not leave him alone. They even went so far as to start tracing his movements. Unfamiliar with the Canadian legal system, they were unaware that a suspect had the right to remain silent and only to speak in the presence of their lawyer. Those were his basic rights, guilty or not. For the moment, the two investigators viewed the case as a heinous conspiracy and a real provocation, almost approaching arrogance. Two village police officers right in the middle of a North American urban jungle. They were really the ones who were in trouble. For these two old-school cops, a suspect with nothing to hide would have immediately cooperated to prove their innocence and to show that they've done nothing wrong. Whereas this paunchy, bespectacled little old man played it cool and mysterious and closed up like a clam. Not wanting to return to Switzerland empty-handed, the two police officers then turned their attention to those closest to the Belshaws in order to find more about them. Working with their Canadian counterparts, the officers discovered that Cyril Belshaw had already been arrested once before for indecency on public highway. Was he with his wife? No. He was the company of another woman who was mentioned in the Canadian investigators' files simply as Mrs. X. The mysterious Mrs. X? The case dated back to February 1978, when a police officer knocked on a car parked near the woods, with an unknown woman in the company of Cyril Belshaw in a state that left little doubt as to the nature of their relationship. Mr. Belshaw had to pay a stiff fine that day in order to avoid a scandal. Such an eminent professor as himself, dragged through the mud for a tryst in the middle of the woods under the blazing Canadian hot sun. At the request of the Swiss police officers who wanted to question her, Mrs. X agreed to answer their question. She revealed that she and Cyril knew each other from Vancouver since the time she was a teenager and he was already married and a father. By coincidence, 25 years later, she not only became one of his students at the university, but also his neighbor before the two fell in love. She explained, among other things, that there was nothing serious between her and Mr. Belshaw that he was her professor, that she was completing her thesis in anthropology on indigenous peoples of America, that it was nothing more than a passing infatuation to clear his head and to escape from a chaotic marriage. She added that he absolutely had no intention of divorcing his wife, Betty, as she herself did not want to separate the children from their father. When they told her about the episode of lovemaking in the car, the woman strenuously denied what the officer reported. She asserts that she never had any kind of sexual relationship with the suspect and that their love was purely platonic. On that particular evening, they were discussing work 
that she was about to present to a jury of specialists and she emphasized her status as a student researcher at the university, probably to give herself a bit of legitimacy. But the story appeared to be much more complicated than the woman would have the officers believe. With this new information, the two inspectors finally returned to Switzerland. On October 7, 1979, an international arrest warrant was issued for Cyril Belshaw. However, Canada refused to extradite him due to the lack of evidence, which perfectly suited the suspect who had no intentions of going anywhere and who continued to live his life as before, giving classes at the university, visiting his children and eating out at restaurants. The Swiss authorities were kicking themselves. What was the point of buying overpriced airline tickets and flying out to investigators only to have them return empty-handed? Now, how were they supposed to get the suspect to confess and to convict him when his country flatly refused to deliver him? The police didn't know it yet, but soon things would begin to unfold on their own. Cyril Belshaw made a serious misstep when he decided to travel to France to take part in a conference as the president of International Anthropology Association. Didn't he realize that there was an international arrest warrant issued against him? When he arrived on the tarmac at Rossi Airport on November 11, 1979, he was immediately detained by the border police. He was jailed a few hours later at Fleury Marriages Prison in Paris. The anthropologist, true to his nature, said nothing. The French police, believing the silence to be the result of a language barrier, sent for an interpreter before realizing that it was merely an Anglo-Saxon strategy for a suspect to speak only in the presence of a lawyer. Swiss authorities themselves soon learned of Cyril Belshaw's arrival on French soil and demanded that he be extradited immediately. The anthropologist vehemently objected and demanded to be represented by a lawyer. His choice was for a barrister and not just anyone. He wanted the hotshot lawyer and death penalty opponent Mr. Robert Barrenter of the Paris Court of Appeal. While in pre-trial detention, Cyril Belshaw reached out to one of his friends in France also an anthropology professor named Pierre St. Levers to ask him to somehow intervene on his behalf with Robert Badinter and to paint him a portrait of the character that he would be defending during the trial. Pierre St. Levers complied with his request and sent Justice Badinter a rather syrupy letter full of praise in which he outlined all the contributions Mr. Belshaw had made to the field of anthropology since the 1950s, as well as all the accolades he had received and his nomination to the prestigious position of President of the International Anthropology Association. The case immediately took on major propositions and Belshaw enjoyed the complete backing and support of the scientific community. But that alone was not nearly enough. As for Robert Badinter, he insisted on demonstrating that the case lacked material elements and concrete evidence that it was not known how and where Betty Belshaw was killed and there was no motive behind the crime. Yet, despite his skills as an orator, he was unable to prevent his client from being extradited to Switzerland, which occurred a few days later. Since winter had already begun in Switzerland and a blizzard had paralyzed the district of Vaud, the trial of Cyril Belsha, an alleged murderer of his wife, began on December 3, 1980, at Assis Diegel, in a highly charged atmosphere. A crowd of curious onlookers gathered right from the start of the trial. Next to them, reporters from France, Canada, Belgium, Italy and the United States and all over Switzerland scrambled to book a spot in the courtroom. Cyril Belcher was represented by a lawyer, Eric Stoudman. Additionally, there was a German prosecutor, Walliheim, known for his intransigence as well as three other judges and six jurors. Was Belcher credible? Hardly. 
His innocence was unconvincing. Immediately after the hearing commenced, the tone was set. There was a very real and formidable tug of war between the prosecutors and the lawyer for the accused, Justice Stoutman. Soon the judge was faced with an extremely intelligent suspect, self-controlled, even hardy and not very verbose. Furthermore, he displayed a great amount of ambivalence right from the very beginning of his trial. His words, his attitude, and his gestures all suggested that he was hiding something that he was playing or feigning. Belshaw showed incredible composure and self-control, was not intimidated in the least by the Attorney General. The prosecutor was required to show that Belcher was a convincing perpetrator and to do that, he harassed the suspect with a lot of pushy questions just like the two officers from Wad who interrogated him while in Vancouver. Belshaw recanted his answer for every question asked. He looked on the judge with disdain and even went so far as to treat him like a Nazi. A fury of disapproving whispers swept over the courtroom. To prevent the situation from deteriorating any further, Justice Stoutman quickly gave a crash course on legal legislation in Canada, which the Swiss judges were unfamiliar with and which stipulated that the accused was not obligated to answer all questions put to him before and during his trial, which was naturally interpreted as arrogance and a latent sense of superiority. Yes, sir, but we are in Switzerland now and not in America, shouted Mr. Heim, red with anger. The lawyer was visibly shaken. He then began his argument, stating that his client and his late wife were on good terms, that they both held prestigious positions, and that the name of Belshaw carried a great deal of weight in the field of anthropology. Would he have sacrificed all that to kill his wife for a reason that were unknown even to him? Moreover, what would have been the reason? The unlikely Mrs. X? Would Betty have eventually discovered her husband's affair? Would she have thrown a fit of anger and then started a fight that would end up with murder? According to the lawyers of the accused, this would have been unlikely for an aging couple like the Belshaws, who had been married for many years, were respectful of each other, and were both professionals. How would it be possible for my client, who was neither young nor healthy, to have murdered his wife, who was rather heavy, to have wrapped up the body and then thrown it from the top of the bridge all by himself? That is insane, declared Justice Stoutman. Medical examiner Claude Ibermastag then took the stand to disclose the dental records that had been deliberately falsified by Cyril Belshaw. The accused tried to defend himself. I didn't want to look at the x-rays. The Canadian police will tell you. I was in denial far from my children and completely lost. It was difficult for me to accept that the dental records that I had in front of me were really from this corpse, from my darling Betty. So I altered them, perhaps as a way of reassuring myself. Heim, the prosecutor, could not help but let out a long sigh of exasperation. Cyril Belshaw's demeanor, like that of an irreproachable English lord, even began to garner sympathy from some in the courtroom. The prosecutor, Willie Helm, did not want to fight it out. He had to get him to confess. Without changing his approach, he continued his attack. How do you explain the fact that you did not learn of your wife's death through the newspapers? Such an event would surely not have gone unnoticed to a keen observer like you. If you were truly innocent, you would have gone directly to the police or the gendarmes. But you did not, fearing that you would be discovered. In my opinion, you simply stripped the body of anything that the police might suspect because they would have come to approach you. In the most refined Oxford English, without taking his eyes off the prosecutor, the defendant simply answered, I was just about to leave for London for a conference, and I did not take note of the paper nor the article. 
If I had read it, I would have never believed that it concerned my wife, since the woman in question was much younger. This was a woman between 30 to 40 years old, whereas Betty was already 60 at the time she disappeared. He then added, not without a hint of deliberate malice, As for the dental crowns, I couldn't tell you how many I have myself, your honor. The prosecutor then turned crimson and swallowed a long drink of water to prevent him from getting choked up by anger. Sensing tension in the air, the second judge, Justice Guignard, took over, employing the same sentimental style. What kind of a man are you to discard your wife's body without a second thought, in the middle of winter, leaving her in the mercy of wolves, wild boar, and vermin? You're quite simply a monster. The anthropologist opened his mouth, but no sound came out. In truth, he was very much more shaken by the judge's attitude than his actual words. In his opinion, this kind of behavior was despicable and even scandalous coming from a magistrate who should first and foremost be impartial and not take sides. In Canada or the United States, such an attitude would have him relieved of his duties and charged with serious professional misconduct, whereas here he had the feeling that the prosecutor and his hysterical colleagues had teamed up against him to wear him down and charge him for a crime that he didn't commit. As for the other participants in the trial, the only plausible explanation was that the victim never made the trip to Paris in question, which would explain why none of the Noatel staff remembered seeing her in their establishment. Her husband must have killed her in the rental apartment in Crans, Montana, before transporting the corpse in the trunk of his car and then throwing the body off the Eagle Bridge before continuing on to France. Additionally, the Swiss investigators, who thoroughly searched the couple's apartment, found several MasterCard receipts in their dresser drawers. Mr. Belcher was in the habit of paying for everything up by credit card and keeping the receipts and then suddenly during a trip to Paris, he started paying for everything in cash. This was a well-thought-out ploy to obscure any traces of meal prices, movie or theater tickets multiplied by two which would have easily been included in a bank statement. Another significant clue was that apart from the mysterious absence of Mrs. Belshaw at the hotel, the no-hotel guest's registry indicated Mr. Cyril and Betty. There is just the name Betty, full stop, as if she were a family pet, to prove that she was actually there but without emphasizing anything more. The mention of her name in the registry was superfluous, written in pen by her husband at the last minute. The accused still had an answer for that in English-speaking countries which are more relaxed when it comes to using surnames. Using a proper name for women is much more common than in Europe, both personally and professionally. Writing the name Betty without adding Mrs. or last name was just a coincidence and was not done with any underlying motive. On the second day of the trial, the accused did not change his attitude, his words, or his behavior. He had a fixed story and would repeat it constantly. He was stylishly dressed and adopted an affected British air that was emotionless and almost indifferent. While this may have irritated the judges, the jury still wanted to get more accurate picture of the accused before dismissing. The trial was about to come to an end when it took a decisive turn as Belshaw's daughter took a stand to testify. This young woman spoke French fluently. She had a touching simplicity and admirable strength and she lent a touch of humanity, calm and concern to an emotionally charged courtroom. As soon as she took the witness stand, Diana Belcher softly and calmly made the following statement. My father loved my mother and my mother loved my father. And with that, she immediately endeared herself to the four male members of the jury. 
Diana recounted how she found her father grief-stricken and on the edge of the abyss when he returned to Paris. In the cottage in Crans, Montana, the young woman noted how her father retrieved her mother's luggage and set it on the bed but did not have the strength to open any of the bags. So she did it for him. At that point, lawyer Eric Stoutman asked her a question that had been on his mind for some time. Did any of the luggage have dirty clothes? Diana Belshaw answered in the affirmative. Dirty clothing among the content of the luggage could only prove that Betty really was there during the trip to Paris. The trial then proceeded in another direction from that moment on. It might have been said that it could be characterized as before and after Diana Belshaw. Her brilliant testimony was full of candor and coming after the clamoring from the three prosecutors. Her few words and her benevolence were certainly not enough, but nevertheless had a tremendous influence in changing the trial's direction. December 8, 1980 was the last day of the trial. Justice Eric Stoutman addressed the members of the jury one last time. If despite this long and difficult investigation, it is still impossible to convict his client for the premeditated murder of his wife, it is essentially because there is a significant amount of reasonable doubt. The public prosecutor Willie Heim, exhausted from three days of oral arguments, sought to sentence the accused to 12 years imprisonment for voluntary homicide, bodily injury resulting in death, and for disposal of a corpse. The six judges withdrew for deliberations, which lasted for hours. At the time the verdict was announced, the mystery still remained, hanging there like a menacing shadow that threatened to destroy both lives and careers. The silence weighed heavily over the courtroom. Everyone held their breath until the last second. Judge Guignard read the verdict and listed all the charges against the defendant. There seemed to be little doubt that he was about to face life imprisonment after the next words were spoken. But then, quite unexpectedly, not guilty. There were serious doubts that prevented Belshaw from being convicted. Following the verdict, Belshaw, with his customary dignity, warmly shook his lawyer's hand. His life had been hanging by a thread, but he was now finally a free man. The courtroom audience began to leave. Belshaw affair remains one of the most famous yet strangest cases of the second half of the 20th century. Partly because of the prime suspect's celebrity status, but mostly because of the strange series of events. Today in Switzerland, France and Canada, the identity of the person behind the murder of Betty Belshaw and woman with an uneventful life who accompanied her husband on a trip remains unknown. The motive of jealousy surfaced time and again in the judge's closing arguments, but apparently it was not enough to convict the husband, the mistress, or both of them together. There are many who asserted that when Belshaw returned to Canada following his acquittal by the Swiss legal system, he immediately purchased new coverings for his car for some reason that remains a secret. In 1984, he married the famous mysterious Mrs. X and then was forced to sell his house to pay his legal fees. He later became a food critic, but occasionally wrote magazine articles on anthropology, including one published in an issue of National Geography just before his death. He died on November 20, 2018, almost a centenarian, taking his secrets to the grave. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.